I hope you had a happy Thanksgiving. I know that now that Thanksgiving is over, most of us are probably looking ahead to what's next, kids? Christmas? A few of you are looking ahead to Christmas. But I think it might be good for us for just a moment to look back, and I want you to think about the spectacle that engaged your eyes and your hearts this Thanksgiving week. And by spectacle, I mean something that demands to be seen and celebrated, that demands to have your affection and your attention and your focus. I think if you think about Thanksgiving week and all that happens that week, it really is a week of spectacles. Maybe for some of you, it was watching the Macy's Day Parade and all the massive balloons and the bands and the musicians and all of the trappings that goes into this massive parade. Maybe for three of you, it was the dog show that followed the Macy's Day Parade. The kids wanted to watch that for about three minutes, and they said, why does anyone want to watch this? (laughs) Many of us were infatuated with a spectacle of people throwing a ball across a football field. Some of our teams won, and others did not. That's another story for another day. Perhaps you were fascinated by the spectacle of Black Friday shopping the cars and the traffic and the lights and the hot cocoa and the coffee and the stores filled with people, or maybe it was the spectacle of doing it all from the convenience of your phone at home. Spectacles capture our attention. They demand our focus. They demand our hearts. Maybe it was some movie that you watched that just came out, some massive must-see film, or maybe it was going back to watch one of those holiday films that you watch every single year. Something captured your eyeballs this week. I want us to think about a different spectacle, a spectacle that, if we're honest, It's almost shocking to put this spectacle up against all the things that seem to matter so much on a week like Thanksgiving week. I want us to look today at the spectacle of the cross where our Savior breathes His final breath. And I want you to see at the cross something that demands our eyes and our hearts and our lives. Something so massive and so glorious that all the other spectacles should grow strangely dim in the light of His glorious grace. And yet, if we're honest, a spectacle that because it's so old and we've heard about it so often, it's so easy to think that what happens in Ann Arbor, Michigan on a Saturday matters more than what happens here. So, turn your Bibles, if you're not already there, to Matthew 27, verse 45. Last week, we stood at the cross And we examined how and why Jesus suffered. This week, Jesus' suffering 
is going to end. But before it does, it's going to get worse. Much, much worse. Because up to this point, Jesus has been enduring the wrath of Satan, the wrath of man. But now in our text this morning, we will watch as Jesus endures the wrath of God in our place. The big idea that I hope to communicate from our text this morning is that every ounce of the wrath that God's people deserve was fully, finally, and forever paid by Jesus on the cross. That sentence is massive. Every ounce of wrath that God's people deserve is fully and finally and forever paid on the cross. If, if that's true, Christian, on your worst day, after your greatest failure, after you one more time put your heart and your affections on something smaller than Jesus, He still has no wrath for you. If that's true in your deepest, darkest corners of your closet where all those skeletons lie and you don't want to think about them and you don't want them ever to resurface, the Father sees them. And He laid the penalty for those things on Christ and there is no more condemnation for you. It's tempting to look at that claim from our text and ask ourselves, can it really be true? Can it really be true that if I belong to Jesus, God has no more anger over my sin? Can it really be true that no matter how hard I fall, if my faith is in Christ, there is no more condemnation left for me? What I hope to show you today are six proofs from our text that Jesus really paid it all. That the wrath of God that you deserve was fully and finally and forever paid by Jesus on the cross. We see that in this spectacle here at the cross. Six proofs. We'll dive right into truth number one. I want you to notice with me a supernatural darkness. If you think about when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the, the, the night was bright with light as angels appeared to the shepherds and the glory of the Lord shone that night in Bethlehem. Here, the opposite is true. Here, we see not great light, but great darkness. Look at verse 45. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. The Jewish day begins at 6 a.m., so the sixth hour would be noon, and the ninth hour was 3 p.m. So, so at noon, in the brightest part of the day, something extraordinary is happening. Up to this point, if you're a, a bystander looking at the cross, it would have appeared like any ordinary crucifixion. 
You might have thought, well, they, they seem to be a little bit especially angry towards the guy in the middle cross, but other than that, it seems pretty normal. Until at noon, when the sun is at its peak, the sky turned black. Now, some have said that this was perhaps some sort of an eclipse. But we know that Passover actually occurs during a full moon, and eclipse can't happen during a full moon. And we also know that eclipses are measured in minutes, not hours. This is three hours of darkness on the cross. There's, there's something different happening here. So why did the sky turn black? Throughout the scriptures, darkness is a sign of divine judgment. Remember the, the story of how God rescued his people from slavery to Egypt? The ninth plague, the sky turned black. The prophets often refer to judgment as great darkness. Even Jesus referred to hell as a place of outer darkness. So darkness in Scripture is often used as a metaphor for judgment, for the wrath of God. So we believe that in this moment when the sky turns black, for this span of three hours, Jesus is enduring the weight of the wrath of God. Up to this point, everything we've talked about, the scourging, the mockery, the nails in his wrists and in his feet, the crown of thorns on his head, all of that has been the wrath of the Romans, the wrath of the religious leaders, the wrath of Satan himself. But now, in this moment, as the sky turns black, this is the moment when the wrath of God for your sin, Christian, is laid upon the sun. And we must remember that Jesus willingly endured the wrath of God in our place. Listen to John Stott, helpfully writes this in his book, The Cross of Christ. He says, The Father did not lay on the Son an ordeal he was reluctant to bear, nor did the Son extract from the Father a salvation he was reluctant to bestow. There is no suspicion anywhere in the New Testament of discord between the Father and the Son, whether by the Son wresting forgiveness from an unwilling Father or by the Father demanding a sacrifice from an unwilling Son. There is no unwillingness in either. Father and Son and Holy Spirit are united in this plan to save God's people. And what does it require? It requires the Father pouring out His wrath on the Son. And this is the moment when it happens. It's important to keep that in mind as we consider the second proof that Jesus paid it all. And that is a stunning question. Look at verse 46. And about the ninth hour, that'd be... 3 p.m., Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, which is in Aramaic, and it means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the only place in all of the Gospels where Jesus does not refer to God as Father. Everywhere else, Jesus calls God Father, but here he says, my God. There's almost like a distance there. 
Why? Because Jesus is enduring the wrath of God. For eternity past, Jesus has endured an unbroken, joy-filled, perfect fellowship with Father and Spirit. But now, for the first time in the history of everything, that relationship is severed. I know many of you in this room know what it's like to lose somebody that you love. But imagine you haven't loved that person for five years or 10 years or 50 years, but for 50,000 years. And imagine in that relationship, not once was there ever a moment of discomfort or frustration. I don't know about you, married couples, but sometimes Holly and I get in little spats. We now and then fight just a bit, and there's a brokenness in our relationship that has to be remedied. Imagine a relationship existing for thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years, and not once was there ever a hint of a moment like that. That's the father and the son. And imagine, not only do you lose the one that you love, but imagine the one that you love forsakes you. They're not separated by death, but them abandoning you. And imagine even still, greater still, that that one that you love blames you for all the wrong in all the world. That's just a tiny glimpse of what the Son is enduring as He bears the wrath of God in our place. The Father is blaming the Son for your sin and mine. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake, He, that's God the Father, made Him, that's God the Son, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. What does it mean that God the Father made God the Son to be sin? It doesn't mean that Jesus became a sinner. He's sinless. What it means is God the Father treats Jesus as if he was a sinner. I think we don't really realize what that means. I think we're so comfortable with the cross that we've lost sight of what it really means for the Father to treat the Son as if he's a sinner. What does the Bible say about what God the Father thinks about sinners in their sin? Leviticus chapter 20, verse 23 says that God detests the wicked. We, we made a, a brisket for Thanksgiving rather than the traditional turkey. Don't judge me. Not because we detest turkey, but we prefer brisket. I mean, who doesn't, right? I mean, I, I know you're probably envious. Why did I think of that? Because you, you feel bound to this tradition. I've got to have turkey. And turkey's fine. You don't detest it. It's fine. But God detests the sinner. That's what Leviticus 20, verse 23 says. 
or Psalm 5. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors. When's the last time you used that word? Abhors deep hatred. The bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Or Psalm 11, verse 5. The Lord hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Brothers and sisters, those verses might be startling to you. I could show you dozens upon dozens of verses that, shed, that say this is how God feels towards people in their sin. That's what Christ is enduring in our place. He's enduring the hatred of God, the detestation of God, abhorrence of evil. The Father is treating the Son as if He were to blame for all the wrong in the universe. Jesus is being punished for every sin ever committed by every one of His people. Every murder, every rape, every lie, Every adulterous thought and deed, every theft, every abortion, every evil, even evils which we would not even want to mention in this room, the Son is enduring the weight of God's wrath against that evil. Imagine all the holy hatred of God poured out on the Son instead of you. That's what's happening in this moment when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you're paying attention, you might be tempted to ask, well, why does Jesus seem confused? Why does Jesus say, why? If he's the eternal son of God, doesn't he know? This is why some people look at this story and they think that the father is Almost like this is divine child abuse. Like the son doesn't know what's happening. Why does he say, why have you forsaken me? A thousand years before this moment, King David wrote a song about the suffering of Messiah. We quoted from that psalm last week. It's Psalm 22. Now listen to Psalm 22, verses 16 to 18. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now that's unmistakably pointing to the cross, right? Psalm 22 is a psalm that's pointing to the cross. Look at how that song begins. Listen to Psalm 22, verse 1. My God... My God, why have you forsaken me? You see what Jesus is doing on the cross? He's not confused asking the Father, why are you doing this? He's quoting Scripture. He's showing us, if we have eyes to see it, that all of this was pointing to this very moment. But it does appear like people watching the cross are confused. Look at verse 47. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to save him. 
Why do they say they think that Jesus is calling Elijah? Well, the, the Aramaic word for God, Eli, sounds like Elijah. And so you can understand the mix-up. Eli sounds like the word for Elijah, and so perhaps they're confused. The problem with that is most of the people there probably understood Aramaic. They understood the language Jesus was speaking. And if they were Jewish, they knew Psalm 22. They knew that he was quoting Scripture. So why do they say he's calling Elijah? Because they're still mocking him. Even as the sky turns black in the heat of the day, they're still mocking him. One of them takes a sponge, puts it on a reed. One of the other gospels tells us that Jesus cries out because he's thirsty. It's been said that crucifixion is basically a slow, long, slow, painful dehydration. The, the fluid's leaving your body rapidly. Jesus is thirsty. And someone says, I know what we'll do. Let's get some vinegar, put it on a sponge, and give it to him. They're still mocking him. You ever try to drink vinegar to quench your thirst? When I was having all the serious throat issues last year, a couple of people tried to get me on to drinking apple cider vinegar. That stuff's disgusting. This is not what you want to drink. This is more mockery. And then someone cries out, the G, or cries out and they say, leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah will save Jesus. Well, guess what, Christians? Elijah is not going to come to save Jesus because Jesus came to save Elijah. The only way that Elijah or anyone else can be saved is if Jesus paid fully Finally and forever, every ounce of God's wrath that his people deserve. We see that in this stunning question. A third proof that Jesus paid it all is found in a single word. Look at verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Matthew doesn't tell us, but the gospel of John tells us the word that Jesus cries out with a loud voice. It's in John chapter 19, verse 30. It'll be on the screens. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, and this is one word in the original language, it is finished. And he bowed up his, or bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So what did Jesus mean when he said, it is finished? Tetelestai, one word in the original language. What did Jesus mean? Did he mean that he was finished performing miracles? It can't be true because Jesus' greatest miracle is to come. Three days later, Jesus will rise from the dead. Did Jesus mean that he was finished teaching his disciples? No, because he would teach them after his resurrection, and he continues to teach us today through his word. Did Jesus mean when he said it is finished that he was finished fulfilling prophecy? No, because he's to be pierced in the side. He's yet to be buried in a rich man's tomb, and there are countless prophecies about Jesus' return that have yet to be fulfilled. Did Jesus mean that he was finished with all of his works on earth? Well, that can't be it either, because Jesus is continuing to work through his people, the church. So what did Jesus mean when he said that single word, it is finished? Charles Spurgeon tells us this, it would need all the other words that ever were spoken 
or ever can be spoken to explain this one word. It is altogether immeasurable. It is high. I cannot attain it. It is deep. I cannot fathom it. It is finished is the most charming note in all of Calvary's music. The fire has passed upon the lamb. He has borne the whole of the wrath that was due to his people. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Do you want proof, Christian, that God has no more wrath for you? Then look at that single word. It is finished. The next proof, number four, that Jesus paid it all, is found in a split curtain. Look at verse 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. What's the significance of this curtain being torn or split? The temple in those days was a series of inner rooms, each one representing closer intimacy with God. Think of it like Russian nesting dolls. You got one inside the other, inside the other, and the closer you get to the center, the closer you are to the presence of God. There was an outer court for the Gentiles, and then inside that was a court for the Jewish women. Inside that was a courtyard for Jewish men. Inside that was the holy place, which only the priests could enter. But inside the holy place was another room, called the most holy place, or the holy of holies. At one time, this room had been the place where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. This was the place where the presence of God was manifest in a local place. This is the place of closeness to God. And what separated the holy place from the most holy place was a curtain. Only one man the high priest could enter into the most holy place and he could only do it one day a year on the Day of Atonement, what the Jewish people now call Yom Kippur. On that one day out of the year, the high priest could enter into the, holy place, the most holy place. First, he had to confess his own sin and if he had not dealt with it prior to entering into that place, he would be stricken dead. This was the place of greatest nearness to God, and it's separated by this massive curtain. The, 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 the ceiling of the temple was 60 feet high, so 60-foot curtain, Jewish tradition says it was four feet thick. This is a massive curtain. But at the moment of Jesus' death, against all odds, that curtain is ripped from top to bottom. 60 feet, thick, massive curtain. Inside another structure, it's ripped. Many people believe that 3 p.m. on Good Friday was the very moment when many of the Jewish people were gathered in the temple to sacrifice the Passover lamb. At that very moment, as the blood of the lamb is being spilled throughout the temple, 
the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world is giving his life and breathing his last breath. What better picture could there be that God will pass over our sins if we are covered by the blood of the Lamb? I'm sure that many people who were in the temple that day so it was just a coincidence, you know, there was an earthquake, you remember. In fact, even today, the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, it's on a fault line. There's sometimes earthquakes there, and people say, well, you know, the earthquake caused the curtain to split. But for those of us who believe in Christ, we understand that this is more than just a, uh, a thing that happened. There's significance here, deep significance. No longer are we unable to enter into the presence of God. Because the curtain was torn, because it was split from top to bottom, from heaven to earth, God is saying, all of you can come to me. Gentiles, Jews, men, women, young, old, all of you. The only condition to enter into my presence is that, the, that you come through the blood of Christ. Hebrews chapter 10 puts it this way, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. The curtain being split was another proof that Jesus really paid it all. A fifth proof is seen in a surprising miracle. Look at verse 52. The tombs also were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Uh, it's no surprise that the tombs would be opened by a massive earthquake. That can happen. What is surprising is this miracle that only Matthew records that the bodies of many saints were resurrected and started appearing to people throughout Jerusalem. About four or five years ago, our dearly departed brother, Cliff Hall, said, Hobson, I want you to study this passage and explain it to me. What's going on here? And I regret to tell you that I never got around to it until now. Cliff already knows. He's fine. But for me to really dive into this, what's going on here? I mean, it almost looks like the Bible's version of Thriller by Michael Jackson. This is one of those miracles that creates more questions than answers. So which Old Testament saints were resurrected? Was it Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, one of the prophets? What do they look like? Did they have glorified bodies like Jesus did after his resurrection? Or do they have earthly bodies like Lazarus did when he rose from the dead? Did they ascend into heaven after their appearances? Or did they live another life and die another death? How many were resurrected? And how many people saw them? And why did none of the other gospels say anything about this surprising miracle? And perhaps the most puzzling question is, why didn't they appear to anyone until after Jesus' resurrection? Look at verse 53. They came out, coming out of his tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city. I mean, are they just waiting in the tombs for a couple of days? Just chill out here. What's going on? That last question is probably the only one that we can answer. 
All the other ones we just don't know. Uh, the, the original language in our text actually suggests that the tombs were open on Friday, but the bodies weren't resurrected until Sunday. So you need to remember that Friday, this, it, it, uh, Friday at sundown, the Sabbath day begins. So once it's the Sabbath, there's no work to be done throughout Jerusalem. You don't work on the Sabbath. So the tombs are open. All these tombs throughout the city are opened by an earthquake, but they can't do any cleanup. Why? Because it's the Sabbath. So these tombs are open. The bodies are just laying there. There's probably the smell of rotting corpses and all that stuff. But then Sunday morning before, anyone can get up and do any work. Something happens in one tomb. Christ resurrects. And then he being the first fruits of a new resurrection leads the way with all these other resurrected bodies the best that I can make of what's happening here. I think that fits with a couple other New Testament passages that tell us that Jesus is first in a new kind of resurrection. Why don't we know more information about this surprising miracle? Because this miracle is not the main resurrection that matters. All these little resurrections are just pointing to the big resurrection. Jesus' resurrection is proof that death is crushed to death at the cross. Seventh proof, that Je- or sixth proof rather, that Jesus really paid it all is seen in a scandalous conversion. Look at verse 54. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Now, a centurion was a Roman military officer with authority over a hundred men. So, I don't think it's a stretch to say that this man was probably the one that oversaw Jesus' crucifixion. He might have been the one who swung the hammer or gave the order. I think it's probably reasonable to suggests that this man was a hardened, calloused, violent, sadistic, power-hungry, murderous, bloodthirsty executioner of a man. This is not a good guy. And yet, as he watches the sky turn black, and he watches Jesus responding to what's happening on the cross... And he watches how Jesus cries out, it is finished, and dies exactly when he intended to. And he watches all of that. This man, and some of the soldiers with him, the text says it's not just him. They were filled with awe, and they said this man was the Son of God. They look and they believe. How is it that these soldiers that crucified Jesus could believe. Because shortly after he was nailed to the cross, before the sky turned black, Jesus' first words from the cross were, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And the Father is answering Jesus' prayer. You will never find a heart so hard that the Father cannot soften it. 
loved ones who are praying for a hard-hearted soul to put their faith in Jesus, take comfort here. You will never find a heart so hard that the Father can't soften it. Jesus prays, Father, forgive them. And the same Father who revealed to Peter that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, is now revealing it to this centurion and these soldiers. Why would the Father save the very men who crucified His Son? Or better yet, why would the Father save any of us? Because every ounce of wrath that you and I deserved was fully and finally and forever paid by Jesus on the cross. That's why. Uh, that's the facts of what's happened in our text. Before we leave here this morning and before we turn our attention to whatever we have the rest of this afternoon, I want to invite us just to meditate for a moment on how we should respond to what we've seen in our text. To this, the ultimate spectacle. Number one, we must repent and believe. The story is told of a frontier family, a prairie fire fast approaching. They're unable to escape. They're convinced they cannot outrun this fire. They cannot survive this fire. And so this family out on the frontier does the only thing that they know to do. And they burn a fire around them, a circle around them. They burn it so that way when the fire comes, it will turn away from the place where the fire has already burned. They burn a fire. They get in the center of the burned out circle and they cover themselves with earth. And when the fire comes blazing towards them, the fire does exactly what they expected and the fire passes them because the fire has already burned right where they are. Dear friend, there is one place in human history where the fire of God's wrath in all of its intensity has already burned and that is at the cross. There is only one place where you can hide and be safe from the coming wrath of God. His wrath will be revealed again. There's one place where you can be safe, and that is to go where the fire has already burned. I plead with you, friend, would you today turn from your sins and put your faith in Jesus? You will either pay for eternity for your sins or trust that Jesus paid it all in your place. If you're here this morning and, and you're not a Christian, you haven't done that before, uh, me or someone around you would love to talk to you further about what it means to turn from your sins and trust in this Jesus. But I plead with you to do that, to repent and believe. Every other application is only for those of us who have already done that. If you have not done that, the rest of what I'm going to say is really of no use to you until you first do that. But if your faith is in Christ, there is much more that this text should lead for us to respond to. If you've already done that, be encouraged that because of this, because of what Jesus endured here, we can die to the fear of man. Jesus says, or the scriptures say in Hebrews 13 verse 5, I will never leave you or forsake you. 
Christian, how can you know that God will never forsake you? Because God forsook his son in your place. You can have confidence that God will never abandon you because he abandoned his son for you. The hymn writer put it like this, the soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. If you know that God will never forsake you, you can endure it when other people forsake you. You don't have to be a slave to what other people think about you if you know what God thinks about you in Christ. You can have hard conversations with people because you're not living to serve them, but God, and he, he will never forsake you. You can tell the gospel to your unbelieving friends and neighbors and not worry about how they respond because you know how God has responded to you in Christ. We can die to the fear of man if we really believe this. If we really believe this, we must not forsake one another. If in Christ you will never be forsaken by God, then because you're in Christ, Christian, you should never forsake each other. We can and should move towards each other in love because God has moved towards us in love. We can pursue one another. We can bear with difficult people. We can have painful conversations. Why? Because God has done all of that and more so that we can be brought near to Christ. Because God will never forsake you, Christian, let us never forsake one another. Another application is that we must confess our sins. When we say Jesus paid it all, we're not saying that we never sin anymore. Think about this, Christian. There are sins you haven't even committed yet that Jesus already paid for. That doesn't mean that we don't confess our sins. It means that we do. Because confession is about restoring a relationship. But the key is that there's already a relationship. When any of my children disobey, the relationship is severed. But they don't have to become my son or daughter. They're already in the family. So too you with God. When we wander from him, it is always forever only one step back. We confess our sins because he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Also, if we really believe this, we should forgive. We must forgive one another. If Jesus was willing to absorb every ounce of God's wrath, for your sins and mine so that we can be forgiven, we must be willing to forgive each other. Hear me, Christian. For you to for refuse to forgive another Christian is to functionally deny that Jesus paid it all. You're saying, yeah, he paid most of it, but they have to pay me a little bit first. No, no, Christian. If you have been forgiven, you must forgive. You must not add to the payment that someone else must pay in order to be forgiven. It's okay to hold each other accountable when we sin, but we dare not withhold forgiveness from one another, especially if we believe that Jesus did not withhold forgiveness from us. We must remember who we are. I've been 
reminding us as we've walked through the past few weeks looking at the cross, that the cross is not something we graduate from. This is something we must return to over and over and over again. The battle to respond respond rightly to all of this is to remember the cross. Romans 8.1 says, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How do you know that? Because all of the condemnation was poured out on the cross. So remember who you are in Christ. We should love his people. If you believe that Jesus paid all the sin debt for all of God's people, shouldn't you love God's people? Shouldn't you deeply love God's people? Christian, the church is not merely an event that we attend. It's a people that we belong to. Look at the price that Jesus paid to redeem this people. Why would we withhold our love and affection from the people that Christ died to redeem? And finally, if we really believe this, we must worship. We must worship. Nobody can fathom the fullness of what Christ accomplished on the cross. But I do believe this. When Jesus died on the cross, he was not potentially paying for sins. He was actually paying for the sins of his people. Just think about what that means for a moment. Could it be possible that God could have saved his son a few ounces of wrath if he chose not to save you, if he chose not to save me? And yet, God willingly punished him for your sins. He added yours to the pile, Christian, so that you could belong to him. No wonder the hymn writer says, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. This should lead to an ecstatic worship. We should sing gladly and give our lives to the praise of the one who bore every ounce of wrath that we deserve on the cross. Would you pray with me? And then let's conclude our service by doing that together.